0: Yeah, I I do think we should pause and and really study and understand the risk, the the hazards, the vulnerability, and determine what the best step
1: is.
2: Hi, welcome to the EM Weekly Show. This is your emergency management podcast. This week, we are talking to one of the thought leaders in the area of disaster recovery and generally emergency management. His name is Dr. David McIntyre. I use a lot of David's books in my classes and um, I was really excited to have him on the show. And before we get into the interview with David, I want to thank all of you for making this show the success that it is. I have made so many friends and, and connections over the last two years since I've been uh, doing this podcast. I can't believe that we're rolling into our third year starting this april right and it's been amazing it's been such a journey and i'm just so honored and humbled to have you guys listening to uh, the interviews and and thank you so much for the feedback that i've received on facebook and linkedin and and uh, feel free to reach out to me and and i always enjoy i'm having conversations with with everybody when they when they reach out so thank you again uh, for your time and for listening now on to the interview Hey, welcome to uh, Ian Weekly and I, today I have uh, Dr. David McIntyre with me today and he is the author of a couple books, but one of the books that I use for teaching is the Response and Recovery book. And well, we got uh, Dr. McIntyre in here today to kind of talk about his history and how he got into emergency management education and um, a little bit about response recovery, especially with the stuff that's happening up in uh, California and with uh, Northern California with Paradise. So uh, David, welcome to Ian Weekly.
0: Well, Todd, thank you very much. It's great to be here with you and to also talk uh, to your listeners.
2: So emergency management education has gone through and had a couple other people we've spoken to has gone through like this really cool evolution and kind of moving out of the sociology into it's really its own realm. But how did you get involved with emergency management and emergency management education?
0: Yeah, well, like a lot of people my age, I kind of fell into it by accident. Um, I didn't really know much about emergency management. I didn't know there were career opportunities. I didn't know what you could teach in this area. And so it. it I kind of just fell into it. Uh, unlike a lot of the students today, they, they know exactly what they want to go into, and there's degrees in that area and so forth. But I, I guess growing up, um, my parents had uh, been involved in a, um, international travel, uh, we had exchange students live with us. Uh, we were able to go on vacations in other countries. And, and so I grew up just just really liking foreign travel and, and, and those experiences. And so I wanted to go into international relations in Spanish, and that's what I did for my undergraduate degree. Decided to go to um, the University of Denver for graduate school. At that time, it was the Graduate School of International Studies. And so I wanted to, to maybe be a diplomat or work for the State Department or something like that. That was kind of my original goal. But I started taking classes up there and I was getting uh, through my coursework and I was getting towards my thesis and I was trying to figure out what I was gonna write on uh, for my, my thesis. And about that time we had an earthquake in California, uh, I believe the Northridge earthquake, and then there was another one in, in um, Japan the Kobe earthquake in 95, and I started just think about those uh, disasters. Um, You know, these were developed nations, they're wealthy, they're rich, uh, they have technology, they have stable governments, and they were struggling to deal with these disasters. And so I started to ask myself, you know, what would a disaster be like in a developing nation, and how would the international community respond? And this kind of ties back to my interest in, in global affairs. So I started to to study that a little bit and just fell in love with the subject. And along the way, I read work by Thomas Drabeck, a very famous disaster sociologist. And um, I found out that he was right there at the University of Denver. And so I had contacted him and asked him if he would be willing to be a mentor for me. Uh, Regretfully, at first he he said, no, he said, "I've, I've got so many grant projects going on. I've got a lot to do. I just don't have any time to spare, which I totally understand and respect. Uh, but I was I was trying to figure out what I would do at that point. I, I felt like I needed a mentor, so I either had to transfer, would either have to transfer somewhere else or try to, you know, convince him to work with me. So I I, I bugged him again and sent him an email and said, look, I, I know you're really busy, but if you'll just give me a few books to read, I'll write a report on it. All you have to do is grade one paper. Uh, and I won't bug you at all, I promise. Uh, I was just looking for that feedback. So he agreed to do that, and then um, I guess he really liked my work. He ended up hiring me as a research assistant. We worked on some papers together, and he helped me get some grants to do some research in the Dominican Republic and in Haiti, or excuse me, Dominican Republic and Peru, uh, for my dissertation, and uh, it just really unfolded uh, that way and when i graduated i was able to get a job at the university of north texas in one of the nation's first well the first emergency management program and that also helped me uh, have a, a many opportunities to advance my career so that's kind of the, the story probably longer than you wanted but uh, that's that's my background
2: oh, that's great and actually it's a, it's really great for the students that are listening to to us today that you have to be tenacious sometimes when it comes into getting what you want and, and not just giving up on the first note. And that's a, that's a, that's a really good lesson right there.
0: Absolutely. And I, I feel like I, uh, because I, in some ways, you know, I was mentored by, by Dr. Drabeck. In some ways I had to learn by myself. And so I, I would spend a lot of time up at the library, at the um, disaster research center at the university of Colorado. And I just read and read and studied and, um, uh, yeah, hard work, it, it pays off. You know, life is challenging, but if people are dedicated, I think it, good things usually
2: happen. So so with disaster research and, and the fact that originally it, it kind of came from the sociology side of, of the world and now we're moving into, realistically, emergency management as its own um, academic um, structure, uh, do you see new research coming out of of for emergency management from emergency managers, or do you still think it's going to sit on the uh, sociology side of the realm?
0: Yeah, great question, and I think there's no clear answer because um, there's research happening in so many areas, but I, I agree with you. I think um, a lot of the initial research on disasters came from either uh, geographers studying natural hazards, mm-hmm. Or it came from sociologists studying human behavior in disasters. And, uh, and I feel in some ways that's kind of where I grew up with the literature. Uh, I read a lot of literature coming out of the disaster sociology and, and just loved it. I, I think it's fascinating and, and really important. Um, but I think, I think, you know, we've, we've seen a movement to other disciplines. And a movement towards emergency management as its own discipline, even though it's interdisciplinary. So, I think there there have been there's been a lot of work from um, really important work from uh, people who study public administration. So Rick Silvis, uh, Bill Waugh. I think their work was, has been very important in the evolution of emergency management literature. Um, but really, there's so many disciplines that, that study disasters and emergency management now. I was, was fortunate to edit a book entitled Disciplines, Disasters, and Emergency Management, and uh, I have contributions from authors of many different disciplines, um, geography, uh, international relations, comparative politics, economics, sociologists. Uh, people from, uh, public administration, people from communication studies. And so there are so many different disciplines contributing to emergency management that in some ways, you know, emergency management is not a single discipline, but it is, you know, multidisciplinary. Uh, and I think there's, uh, you know, it's just fascinating to see the connections of the literature from different fields of study. Uh, but at the same time, there's also, uh, these, these, um, emergency management programs that exist uh, at the bachelor's level, master's level, and and also PhD programs, and they're pumping out scholars that uh, are really advancing the um, the literature and the knowledge base for for this particular field of study. So, lots of great things happening and uh, new information coming out great uh, every day, which is uh, certainly different, you know, than when I was studying. There just wasn't quite that much out there.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, I started my my career. And the, my education career, that is, with a public administration degree uh, because there wasn't really an emergency management uh, field at the time. You know, you could have gone to, say, criminal justice, I suppose, or maybe fire science if you wanted to do something along those lines, or, or sociology, but there wasn't really um, you know, an emergency management type of, of degree program out there. And I think you're right. I think that uh, that's the cool part about this, this uh, program or about emergency management. And that's what I tell my students too, that you can get a really well-rounded undergrad degree, say in public administration, something like that. And then you can move on to a master's degree, say in emergency management or a PhD and so forth and, and, and really grow uh, really your, your academic career that way. I think that's kind of exciting.
0: Absolutely. And, and I think public administration is really important for emergency management you know, we need, we need people who understand leadership and management and organizations and budgets. And uh, I think those skills are things that we can develop further in emergency management.
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I tell my students all the time the the one class that I hated taking but I use almost every day is cost-benefit analysis. <laughs> you know, I was like, "Oh man, that 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 one was a class that really got me." But uh, I, I I use it every day, and I'm thankful for that skill that I have.
0: Yeah, yeah, and there's there's other courses, um, you know, or knowledge sets with grant management, uh, you know, interacting with with city managers, interorganizational behavior, uh, or relations, you know, local, state, federal. Uh, aspects of government that are really important in emergency management. So that's, that's the, the exciting thing about emergency management. It's also the challenging thing because there's so many things that uh, we need to know and understand.
2: That's so true. So one of the books that you have uh, that I really use a lot is your Response to Recovery book. What made you decide to to go with that aspect of, of writing?
0: Yeah, well, um, like a lot of people, um, we we tend to focus on you know lights and sirens or the sexy part of disasters, uh, the really intriguing part of disaster response, the crisis moment of of the disaster life cycle, if you will. And so that I, I got hooked into that area as well. Uh, FEMA was working on a, um, a disaster response. Um, Kind of study guide to to uh, help professors, and uh, I was able to uh, take that opportunity um, from Wayne Blanchard, who was the program manager at the time, and so I started to to put this together uh, for FEMA for the higher education program. And along the way, I one of the things I noticed is that um, there's a lot of great books out there, but I wondered if there were books out there that that did. A couple of things that I wanted. One was to integrate the theory and the practice. Uh, another one is to be, you know, try to be very multidisciplinary if possible. Uh, and then, and then something that, uh, you know, could help students and professors along the way. And so I decided to kind of take some of that material and add other material to it. Uh, the FEMA course that I was talking about and then uh, sought out Wiley. Uh, they were publishing a series at the time and, and I got involved in that. And fortunately, I was able to publish that and then I've published my second edition and I'm sure it probably needs to be updated. So I just finished my Homeland Security book and if I get time and energy, I'll try to tackle that one again. So we'll see how that unfolds.
2: So, like you said, you know everybody, especially the media, they love to focus on the response. I mean, it is sexy, the, the, you know, especially here in Southern California right now with the wildfires. You get some amazing video of the fires going across, and homes on fire, and and the firefighters, police officers running around with their license irons on. But then after that's all settled, and we're we're moving into today, or I guess now here in, in Southern California. And, In Northern California as well, with the Paradise Fire, uh, into the recovery phase, where realistically, in Paradise, they're they're sifting, literally sifting through the ashes, looking for for body fragments, you know, and that, and and so I guess that's still sort of response. How do you see that transitioning going on from the response into the recovery? Like in your mind, uh, through your, you know, your research, when does recovery when does response end and recovery begin?
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question, and there's been a number of, of articles that have have looked at that. Uh, there's a great article by David Nill that I always have my students read. It's on the phases of disasters, and um, you know he he asked some very interesting questions about the phases, and uh, you know one of the questions is you know are they separate? Do they overlap? Are they mutually exclusive? How are they interconnected? And um, I think right now in California, you know, it's hard to say that we're in one phase or the other because, you know, some of these fires are still continuing. Uh, The campfire, I believe, uh, it's it's burned 138,000 acres. Um, It's uh, destroyed 10,000 structures and there's 56 people who have perished. But, um, I believe it's, it's not contained yet. In fact, I'm trying to remember, I think it's 35% contained. So in some ways, they're still, you know, they're still fighting the fire. You know, the response is still in full swing. There's probably people they have to, um, you know, warn still. There's probably evacuation that needs to take place. There's mutual aid coordination that is occurring. And so in some ways, we're, we're still very much in the response phase. And yet in right behind the fire, there's all these, you know, homes that have been destroyed that I've mentioned, and people's lives have, you know, just uh, been, I guess, severely affected. And so people are trying to find a place to live. I know there's, um, I think, uh, 13,000 people in shelters, if I remember correctly. So they're they're trying to just take care of their basic needs, you know, food and shelter and clothing and those types of things. Uh, but after that, of course, there's the, the issue of of rebuilding, And so people are going to have to be working with insurance companies. Uh, they're going to, be have to have to work with the government for permits. There's going to be debris that has to be removed. Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, the people who have been killed. There's been 56 fatalities. And so there's there's uh, an ongoing search and rescue or search and recovery in, in these cases of individuals. I believe there's 130 people missing still. So that that's hard to know if that's response or recovery, but, but that is occurring. Um, and then there's going to be, there probably will be some legal battles. Uh, I've heard up at the uh, campfire uh, that uh, supposedly with the high winds, uh, PG&E, uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, I believe, uh, supposedly they're, they agreed to shut down lines when, when lines get uh, when winds get uh, severe, and I think the winds were clocked at 52 miles per hour, but uh, supposedly that didn't happen. And so um, a line uh, allegedly sparked and led to this fire, created this fire. And so there could be some lawsuits as well. And so it will be interesting to see what happens there. There could be, you know, I think the estimate is that the the liability is 15 billion dollars. Uh, so if that if that has been proven that there is fault by pg and uh, E, there will be lawsuits too. And then the rebuilding could take years and even decades. Um, so this is a you know recovery it blends into response, but it could also take a long, long time for that to play out and for people to resume their normal lives. And then of course, there's you know all the vegetation has been destroyed, and there's the possibility of flooding as well. We saw that with the Thomas fire in uh, December of 2017 in Ventura. So uh, so it's, it's fascinating to look at response and recovery and kind of try to figure out where we're at. Uh, and in some ways, we're still very much in response. In other ways, we're, we're moving towards recovery, but that will take a long time.
2: Yeah, I, I teach that. When you are in the response, I think the recovery section should be ramping up at the same time, because absolutely yeah and that's, that's I really truly believe that you know you talked about the public safety shutoff a little bit, and it 's kind of controversial down here um, as as well or over here, I should say California as well, because so the california Edison initiated the same program and i know that there were some concerns about well when you shut the power off what about people that are on on ventilators and things like this that uh, you know at home and how does that work and i know southern california edison is working hard on that and those guys as well southern california edison are in line for a lawsuit regarding the Woolsey fire because they're thinking that some of their equipment that caused that fire and so i think that we're definitely not out of any kind of of uh the woods at all, for lack of a better term, uh, with both of these fires and, and what the outcomes are going to be and really potential on on policy that's going to be changed uh, due to these two fires.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, you know, it, it is a difficult decision uh, because people do need power. They need electricity to run their lives, to, uh, you know, take care of important medical needs, like you mentioned. And yet we have these dilemmas, you know, if we should shut things down to prevent fires, and it's it's really a tough call, and and it's you know sometimes we guess right and sometimes we don't, and so that's very difficult. But there's you know there's other dilemmas and and potential lawsuits as well. I think some of the warnings, at least with the campfire, were uh, maybe incomplete. Uh, people were notified by police cruisers coming by the neighborhoods, uh, telling them to evacuate. In other cases, people received texts from neighbors, but uh, and some people received, uh, I think, some some warnings from Code Red, which I guess is either a local or state um, warning system. I don't know enough about it to. to say that for sure. Co- but, Code uh, Red is
2: actually a commercial brand. Um,
0: oh, commercial brand. Okay. So uh, the, the federal, you know, the federal emergency alert system, I think, was not used, and at least based on what I read in, in uh, the campfire extensively. And maybe, maybe that's due to some, some technological issue that has to be addressed. But it's tragic because, um, you know, some people may not have been, you know, didn't have enough warning to evacuate. And even and there's other dilemmas too. Um, when you evacuate, how should that occur? Uh, in the campfire, uh, they they obviously were were warning and trying to evacuate the people closest to the fire. They didn't want to, to tell everyone to leave because they were worried about clogging the access roads and so forth. I think there's four of them in that area, and in 2008, with a the fire there, uh, they were overwhelmed with traffic. So they didn't want everyone to evacuate at the same time like what we saw after Hurricane Katrina in, in Houston. But uh, but probably not enough people uh, were notified in advance uh, to get them out of harm's way. And, and that's why we have 56 fatalities and 130 people missing right now. So these are really, uh, you know, the decisions that are made have life and death consequences. It's really difficult to make those decisions because sometimes you don't always have the the important information that you need
2: yeah and paradise is interesting because it only has one way in and and one way out um as far as that for evacuation purposes goes so i understand the concept of doing uh uh keyhole evacuations i, I don't know enough about their emergency management program up there or their public safety program to know uh how they chose to do um warning alert warning systems um i do know that there's been a conversation of why they didn't use uh wea and do they even have access to wea and that's that's some questions that people are asking down here um and that's going to be interesting to find out about about that as well you know there's still still going to be a lot of lessons learned out of that specific tragedy up there absolutely
0: absolutely and right now i i understand that there's um almost there's between four and five hundred people uh, doing search and rescue or search and recovery, and uh, that includes, uh, you know, some local or perhaps state officials and the National Guard as well. So they're busy trying to find uh, people who who may have perished. Uh, the hundred and thirty that are missing.
2: Uh, yeah, I so think that
0: that is important work as well.
2: I think we're going to see those numbers, uh, unfortunately, go go higher. On the, I the think point. so. It's very tragic. Yes, I think you're right. Uh, Yeah, you know, and it's amazing to see some of the drone footage that they are thrown up there. 64% of that city has been destroyed. Hey, let's just take about uh, 60 seconds here and listen to our sponsors. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we connect people with the
0: latest technology possible, whether it's mesh networking, augmented reality, or real-time translation, allowing people who need help to find help immediately. Better matters because lives matter.
2: I know that choosing what conference to attend can be hard. There's so many of them out there, right? Well, I think that if you miss the EMLC, that's the Emergency Management Leaders Conference, you're going to uh, just kind of be a tad bummed out. This event is great because it's only two days. It's May 29th and the 30th. It's in one room and you have access to the speakers and to the special guest and is second to none. You know, it's one of those things where you get to actually engage with people and it's small enough to where you can't really hide. So join me at the EMLC, the Emergency Management Leaders Conference in Phoenix, Arizona on May 29th and 30th. So for more details, go to emlc.us and register today. Hey, welcome back from listening to the sponsors really quick. Without them, we couldn't do what we're doing here, so please reach out to them and tell them that Ian Weekly sent you. Now back to the interview. Uh, yeah, you know, and it's amazing to see some of the drone footage that they're throwing, throwing up there. 64% of that city has been destroyed.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, we were talking about recovery before. Um, you know, just think about the impact of that, because not only are homes destroyed, but businesses are destroyed. So, even if you could get your home back up and running quickly, uh, the business that you work for, you know, your employer may be uh, unable to function still. And so and then and then one business may, you know, their performance, their economic activity re- relies on another. Uh And so, um, you know, it, the recovery is just really problematic in cases like these
2: let's talk about rebuilding here for a second so you know obviously we've we've had a lot of areas where where fires and and storms have destroyed homes Um, you know people are building in areas where they haven't built before such as Houston where they actually built in a reservoir Uh, I know they're doing a buyback program over there Uh, you have the the uh, uh, New Orleans specifically with some of the areas that are flood prone you know they're some in Illinois, I know that they moved a complete city from one level to the next because of of the flooding. Should we rebuild every single time we have a disaster, or should we really take a look at where we're putting homes and businesses?
0: Yeah, I, I do think we should pause and and really study and understand the risk, the the hazards, the vulnerability, and determine what the best step is. Um, obviously, the, the preferred action is to do that uh, before a disaster, when we're developing, um, you know, cities and neighborhoods and and uh, businesses, locating them in the best possible areas. Now, let's be honest. There's there's no risk free area uh, on Earth, but we can minimize our risk if we're careful. And so, certainly after disaster, once we've seen what can happen. We need to learn lessons from that, and it's it's something we need to do, and yet it's something that's also very difficult to do. Uh, you know, politics and preferences get in in the way. People you know they want to resume their normal life, they want to rebuild in their where they lived, where they grew up. So sometimes they don't want to change uh, their their prior ways. And they want, you know, the, the beautiful scenery on the mountainside or what have you. But it really is important for us to, to really stop and think about where we're building, how we're building, or how we're rebuilding, and determine if that's the wisest choice that we can make. And and even if we rebuild, there's things we can do, you know, trying to, to create a barrier, if you will, around the home by eliminating some of the vegetation, so that there is a chance the, the home could survive, you know, uh, some type of fire. So these are really, really difficult, challenging things. Uh, traditionally, you know, emergency managers have focused on preparedness and response, but we really need to also start focusing more on mitigation and recovery so that we can minimize risk and eliminate or uh, reduce um, these things from happening in the future.
2: So one of the things I talk about a lot in my lectures, especially with the recovery aspect of it, is re, is writing your recovery plan. Obviously, it's a plan prior to any event occurring in your into your jurisdiction, and then and one of the things I really encourage to think about and 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 talk to your elected officials and to your city managers and stuff is having the possibility of rezoning during that process of saying, you know, maybe we should move things from here to there or whatever the deal is. And then the other aspect of it too is looking to see what building codes that we can, um, we can put in place to, to reduce the, the damage. So if you take a look at that home in uh, Mexico beach, Florida, uh, that survived that hurricane where the rest of the, the entire city is flattened. Um, could we or should we encourage stronger building codes that are above and beyond what we have today that we know would protect from, from destruction?
0: Yeah, Todd, I think, I think this is really important. You've hit on a, a really key topic that we need to understand and, and push for. Uh, you know, it, it is good to have some of these pre-plans in place. We, we generally have an idea of what could occur and when it, or where it could occur. It's just a matter of when. So, for instance, in the floodplains, we know, you know, there's going to be a flood. If that's the case, um, or if there's, you know, a wildland interface that could lead to fire, if that's the case, should we have some type of building code or some regulations with land use planning that could be implemented on the spur of the moment? And we really need to have those in advance because there's a short window of opportunity if we wait too long to get that figured out after a disaster, people have already started to make plans and rebuild, and it's too late. So you need to have that in advance, so that once once a disaster occur- occurs, it's a turnkey system. You know, you just work with your officials to implement what you've already decided. Uh, and I I think you're right with uh, whether it's land use planning or building codes, we can do things differently, and we can see a benefit from from those actions, uh, you know, uh, as far back as Hurricane Andrew, we saw the impact of building codes. Um, certain neighborhoods and homes withstood disasters based on how they were built uh, with hurricane straps and other reinforcements. Uh, in other cases, uh, the buildings collapsed because they weren't built as they should be. So during or after disaster, you know, let's try to advance the, the codes so that we don't have to go through the same thing again, or at least we try to minimize the probability uh, in the future.
2: And I hate to say this, and it's—it's—I know it's a—it's uh, one of these things that I have to struggle with myself with my my ideals. Um, do you think we should use intimate domain for public safety reasons?
0: I do. I think if 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 there is a a um, logical and convincing case that this area is dangerous it's going to lead to loss of life uh, loss of property I think we have to make tough decisions and do what is in the best interest of uh, individuals and and families and communities obviously there's there's some liberty issues here and freedom issues that people will will complain about but we also need to think about the impact on society Uh, you know an analogy is someone who doesn't evacuate when they should. They've been warned, and they decide not to evacuate. Uh, they end up creating a lot of expense for the community as as the community sends responders out to help those individuals, um, and the the, the uh, responders put themselves at risk to care for those individuals. So, I think the same principle applies to to mitigation you know, imminent domain uh, may need to be used and implemented to prevent future disasters. And uh, it doesn't make sense to keep rebuilding things over and over and over again. We're just wasting resources. Uh, and so uh, if there is a really clear hazard zone, uh, we should probably not live in that location. We could probably use it for other purposes, maybe a golf course or a park or something like that. But uh, let's try to limit the homes or businesses that are located in that particular area and let's find a safer area somewhere else.
2: Yeah. So true. I, I, and it's like, well, it's like, like I said, I, I struggle with that one. Um, cause of my personal ideals of personal freedom and, and liberty. And, but then you take a look at the, at the whole picture. And it's, it's one of the things that I think that you might have to, to tool that we could use to, to really help protect, um, society in general. Yeah. Kind of moving on that, we had this conversation regarding um, mandatory evacuation, and it really kind of comes into play um, with the Malibu fires, where Pepperdine University uh, chose to shelter in place instead of evacuate when the mandatory evacuation order was given. And there are some residents of Malibu that are really upset with Pepperdine, thinking that because those students stayed, that they pulled resources away from fighting the general fire to protect, protect the college. What responsibilities do you think that we have as responders to people who do not listen to the evacuation orders?
0: Yeah, um, you know, this is another really difficult issue um, for so many reasons. Um, you know, part of it is is the nature of the disaster and what's happening, how fast it's unfolding, where the fire is spreading. Uh, That can determine what we do in terms of warnings and what we recommend for evacuations. And sometimes it's safer to stay in place rather than move or leave. Um, And so uh, I think one of the things that we need to do before a disaster is just educate people as much as we can, whether it's citizens or business leaders or university officials. Um, You know, we need to make sure that everybody understands what can happen, what Could occur, how bad it could be, the impacts that it might have on loss of life or property, so that good decisions can be made. And oftentimes, if there hasn't been some forethought into how you might respond, the decisions are suboptimal and even dangerous. And so, it's I think our obligation is to really try to educate people as much as we can before an event occurs, and then when an event occurs, being as clear as we can in in warnings. you know, we learned after 9-11 how important warnings are. Uh, you know, the, the government created this uh, warning system to deal with terrorism. And ironically, it had ignored all of the literature on warning. And there's a rich, robust literature that dates back 50 years that really talks about how warnings should unfold. You know, they need to be clear. They need to be concise if they can. They need to provide uh, facts and evidence and recommendations and uh, some of those Homeland Security warning systems didn't have that after 9-11. And so we, we've had to change our ways there. But, you know, when those warnings are given, uh, they have to be very clear and they have to go out to through different methods. Um, so I mentioned earlier regarding the campfire that, you know, the police were involved as, you know, in their cruisers, they were telling people to leave. The neighbor, neighbors were texting one another. Uh, there were, you know, the Code Red was being implemented. Uh, and in some cases, and so you want multiple ways to communicate with people, including radio or TV or what have you, so that we have the best chance of warning people to uh, leave an area or, or help them understand what they should do to protect themselves when something bad happens.
2: Yeah, Dr. Dennis Bloody has a lot of uh, good research uh, based upon uh, mass notification and, and warning systems, and he's, he's actually a really good resource for that.
0: Absolutely yeah and, and this goes back to our conversation about the disaster sociologist and and certainly he's one of the foremost experts in that particular area understanding human behavior and uh, warning systems and and what makes warnings effective looking at many many case studies you know what what is the best way to warn people and and then how do people react as a result and so it, it is important that um, those in emergency management uh, and others read that literature to understand what we should do when disaster strikes.
2: So on, on the warning systems, kind of kind of going back to that, and there's various different commercial um, opportunities available to, for, for purchasing for for sending you know warnings out, like Code Reds, for instance, is one of them, or uh, you have uh, Titan HST, which was one of our sponsors. Um, they, they're a system you got, uh, you know, regroup, you got, I don't know, Everbridge, a whole bunch of different ones that are out there. And at the end of the day, it's really seeing what they can do for you and and how they can push out. But at the end of the day, you have to, with the way the laws are written, people have to opt in uh, with their cell phones to these programs because we can't get cell data to send out to them. There are landlines we can take legally, What I say take, they'll put this information just like it would be like a phone book um, into our system so we can get their landlines. But with everybody moving away from landlines into cell phones, how effective do you think uh, warning systems like this are?
0: Yeah, that's a a great question and an important issue. Um, I think think one of the things that we need to do in the future is to, to study these different warning systems and identify their strengths and weaknesses, their pros, their cons, their costs, uh, the benefits, so that that emergency managers can make the best use of that technology. So I think that's one thing that we have to do right off the bat, is really understand those different systems and what would work best for for any given community. I think the second thing is to make sure that we're communicating with uh, the end user, you know, the, the cell phone user. Uh, Make sure they understand the options that they have and and the responsibility that they have frankly to Find ways to protect themselves uh, or receive notifications when disasters occur So I think you know that education is very important and then and then another thing that could occur is is you know the government working with uh, these these software vendors and the cell phone providers and the networking you know companies to figure out how we can make sure that people can get warned so there's lots of opportunities for for progress in this area i think even though cell phones provide many advantages uh for warning but um, in some ways we're kind of switching between systems and i don't think we've worked out all of the kinks yet yeah. So there's a lot of thing to uh, things to do still
2: i agree i, th- I think you just Nailed on the head right there. There is some personal responsibility that, that people have to take when they're preparing themselves at home. Um, and I know that's a whole nother, whole other show we could talk about, personal preparedness yeah. for sure.
0: Uh huh. Yeah.
2: All right. Well, we're coming here to the, uh, close to the end here. A couple of last questions I have for you. One is if people are interested in getting in touch with you, how could they find you?
0: Yeah. So, um, I'd be happy to communicate with anybody if they have questions or or if they have comments, uh, so they can reach me. I'm at the, um, at Utah Valley university. I'm a Dean of the college of health and public service. So they can look me up on the website. My email is david.mcintyre at uvu.edu. So McIntyre is M-C-E-N-T-I-R-E at uvu.edu. And I'd be happy to respond to an email and, uh, uh, carry out a conversation as best I can with the the time I have.
2: Well, thank you so much for that. And for those of you that are driving down the road and you don't uh, have time to look or your pencil is not sharp, don't worry. We'll have this information in the show notes that you can go back and click on. All right. So here's the toughest question of the day: What book, books, or publication do you recommend to somebody in the emergency management field?
0: Boy, there's so many good books um, that uh, that they could look at. Um, I think um, there's, there's a great volume, uh, The it's the Handbook of Disaster Research. Uh, this is published by the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. It has a number of authors from different disciplines, um, and there is a second edition, a newer edition, uh, for that book, and it covers so many great topics from so many different disciplines, from different aspects of disaster, different phases. Um, and so that would be a great book that I would recommend. So that would be one of them, but uh, yeah, I would encourage everybody to also look back at the older literature, uh, the disaster sociology literature, and then um, some of the, the PA literature, the public administration literature would be very helpful, particularly if someone wants to be an emergency manager. I think I think they need to understand the geography issues, the hazards, the human behavior aspects that I've talked about, but also how, do you, how can you be an effective emergency manager in a government context? I think that would be very important as well.
2: That's a really great recommendation right there. Well, sir, is there anything that you'd like to say directly to the emergency manager before we let you go?
0: Yeah, well, uh, two comments. Uh, for those who are students, I just want to commend you for for your studies. I think it's really important to become educated. I think having a career in emergency management would be very exciting. And, and uh, although emergency management doesn't pay the best, I think it's very rewarding in other ways. But uh, having a degree is, is financially uh, viable and important. People who have degrees make a lot more money in their life than people without degrees, so it's definitely worth it. And then for the emergency manager, the practitioners, I'm just so grateful for all that they do uh, to protect us. Typically they're they're understaffed, they're underfunded, they're overworked, they have many responsibilities and duties, and so I'm just very grateful for all that they do to uh, protect us, and I certainly salute them as well as the first responders, and I hope that we can do a better job supporting them in the future.
2: Well, David, thank you so much for your time today. And I really appreciate you being here and love to do this sometime again. Okay.
0: Sounds good. Thanks so much, Todd. Bye. Bye.